Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and Steen Raskopoulos is on today's show. This is an excellent chat that I had with Steen a couple of months ago. This is a long-awaited episode because originally Steen and I tried to record very unsuccessfully eight separate goes over about an hour where we barely recorded anything and look, it was fun to have a chat with him but uh, there was nothing that was usable for the podcast so we managed to redo another one and then it's just been sitting on the shelf for no particular reason other than there were some other episodes that I needed to get up but it turns out it's been very good timing because Steen I spoke to him while he was in London but he's now back in Australia and he's doing some shows in fact those shows start this week so it's almost like this is awesome well-planned timing but unfortunately it isn't it's just a coincidence but he is doing his show Steen Raskopoulos Business Never Stops in Sydney as part of the Sydney Comedy Festival from Thursday the 22nd of April through to Saturday the 24th of April but he's also doing his incredible show the bear pack uh from thursday the 22nd of april through to saturday the 24th of april so if you want some steam in your life there are two opportunities and after listening to this excellent episode of philosophy i'm sure that you are want to, going to want to go and see steen do what he does best live it was so nice to have him on the show super lovely and super intelligent guy steen raskopoulos and uh very very funny uh, incredible improviser. Uh, his shows are um, dynamic and exciting and energetic and, yes, absolutely always hilarious. So please go and check out everything he is doing as part of the Sydney Comedy Festival and check out all the other projects that he has going on around the world at the moment. Thank. Speaking of comedy festivals, thank you to everybody who came out and saw both my show were legal uh, as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, my return season of Illegal, I was so pleased to see so many of you come out and see the show either for the first time or a few people who came back to see what had changed and how much it had improved. And then to everyone who – I'm recording this introduction before this other gig. So uh, the final Saturday night of the Comedy Festival, uh, yesterday, if you're listening to this episode ad-free on Patreon, uh, hopefully I did at 10.30 at night a one-off uh, of my – Completely improvised stand-up show. I've never done it before in Melbourne. There's been a couple of false starts. And so hopefully it went off last night uh, 10.30 at the – I don't know why I'm doing the plug. It was last night at the Comedy Theatre. Hopefully it was really great and there was heaps of people there. Thank you if you came out to see that show also. If you like these podcasts and you would like to support them, the best way to do that is go to Patreon, patreon.com slash philosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y, and you can contribute as little as a US dollar per month, and that just keeps the lights on around uh, the Willosophy HQ. It makes sure that I can pay uh, Podcast Mike for all the incredible work he does putting these episodes together. I can pay James Fosdyke for his original artwork and... Uh, the more you contribute there, the more opportunity I have to put out regular episodes. We've been putting out a couple of doubles per week, even though we're not at the $5,000 per month stretch goal, but we were close enough and I had a couple of episodes I really wanted to get out uh, before the comedy festival so that people could have plugs for the shows they were doing. Speaking of episodes, there's a couple of lost episodes. Uh, one with uh, Declan Fay and one with Anna Piper Scott. Both lost for the same reason. My SD card unfortunately decided to uh, just, well, shit itself and die. And look, here's the thing. It had been with me for a very long time. It had recorded a lot of podcasts. I can't really blame it. It had a good life. It had contributed to this podcast in 
innumerable ways. Uh, but unfortunately, the last two uh, episodes that I'd done were completely lost. Well, not completely lost. I have Anna, Anna's side of the conversation. I have Declan's side of the conversation. And my plan was to go through and redo all my questions. But every time I tried to do it, it seemed just very impossible to be able to do that. So luckily, both of those guests have agreed to come back on and do fresh episodes. So when I'm recording this, I'm going to record with Declan tomorrow. So hopefully you'll get to be able to hear that one in the near future. And we are going to reschedule another time for me to sit down with Anna Piper Scott as well and have that conversation. I believe she has had an incredible Melbourne International Comedy Festival. She's been nominated for Best Newcomer. So that is definitely a chat that you will want to hear. It was a brilliant chat in the first place. And I'm sorry that my technology fucked it up. So people did not get to hear it. Uh, what else? I have a bunch of other shows. Tofop, Fofop, and our AFL adjacent podcast, Two Guys, One Cup. You can find those all at tofop.com. That'll do for now. I don't have any shows to plug at the moment. Hopefully, for those who have been asking from other states in Australia, particularly those in uh, Queensland or Western Australia and uh, in Sydney. I've had a lot of requests from people in Sydney about when I'm going to come to Sydney and do some shows. I'm not coming as part of the Sydney Comedy Festival, but I am hoping at some stage later on the year that I will come back to Sydney. I don't know. Maybe I'll come back and do a legal somewhere. I feel like maybe there's an opportunity to do a legal still in Sydney somewhere. And hopefully I'll do some more of my improvised shows. And then 2022, I guess we'll be looking at a brand new show, a brand new tour. And that one, I will definitely be taking everywhere. As long as everywhere is open (laughs) at that point, fingers crossed. Uh, Thank you to everybody again, who came out and saw shows. It is incredibly appreciated um it was a wonderful feeling back to be uh to be back on stage at the melbourne international comedy festival something that i did not think was really truly going to happen this year so i hope you enjoy this episode with steen raskopoulos if you're in sydney please go out and support not just steen but so many acts at the sydney comedy festival in fact you know what i've got my little page up here there are previous philosophy guests who are performing daniel sloss daniel sloss is doing a whole bunch of shows in Sydney as part of the Sydney Comedy Festival. He's one of the best comedians in the world. Go and check out Daniel Sloss. He was recently on a Fofop episode. Uh, who else, uh, as I scroll down here, has been on the podcast before? So we've got Steam. We've got Duruk Jayasinha, singer. Uh, Duruk is uh, doing his show Victorious Lion on Saturday the 24th of April at the Sydney Comedy Festival. Uh, Michelle Brazier. Average Bear, her show Average Bear has actually been nominated for Best Show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. You'll probably know by the time you hear this whether it actually won or not, but she was an excellent recent philosophy guest, so you can check her out. Michael Schaefer, uh, he's doing his show 110%, which is bringing rave reviews at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. You can see that on Thursday, the 29th of April and Friday, the 30th of April. Sammy Shah. Uh, again, another guest that I want to get back on, Philosophy, but he was an excellent first-time guest. Uh, Thursday, the 29th of April through to Saturday, the 1st of May. You can catch him. Ross Noble is doing his show on the 29th of April through to the 2nd of May. Cameron James has not been on Philosophy yet, but has been a faux-fop guest. Go and check out Cameron James. He's doing shows at the Sydney Comedy Festival. Um, who else have we got down here? Fiona O'Loughlin, Saturday, May the 1st, and Sunday, May the 2nd, previous philosophy guest. Tom Gleason is doing Lighten, Lighten Up, his show Lighten Up on Saturday the 1st of May. I've seen that show. That is an excellent show. 
Um, who else have we got here? Uh, are we missing anybody? Alice Fraser. Uh, Alice Fraser is doing her show Kronos, uh, Thursday the 6th of May through to Sunday the 9th of May. Check that out. Harley Breen is doing his show Thursday the 6th of May through to Sunday the 9th of May. Previous philosophy guest Nina Oyama. Uh, excellent previous philosophy guest is doing her show from Thursday the 6th of May right through to Saturday the 15th of May. But I imagine it will sell out. So get in quickly if you want some tickets. Tom Ballard, we're all in this. I heard that's an amazing show. Unless you love the Liberal Party, uh, go and check that out uh, the 7th of May or the 8th of May. Uh, who else? Have we got anyone else here? Jen Frick is just great. Go and see her. I'm hoping she'll be on the podcast at some stage. Um, anyone else that has been on the podcast before? Luke Heggie, I'd love to have him on. Arj Barker, I'd love to have him on. Michael Chamberlain does a great show, Junk Time AFL podcast that I highly recommend. Go and check him out. Danielle Walker, she's brilliant, um, but has not been on the podcast. Nate Valvo is doing Chatty Cathy Friday the 14th of May. No one with more punchlines uh, going around than Nate Valvo. And uh, that is it for preview. Oh, no, Nat's what I reckon. There you go. Nat is doing a show Saturday the 15th of May. So they're your previous Willosity guests who are playing at the Sydney International. The Sydney International Comedy Festival? The Sydney Comedy Festival? Oh, hang on. I've missed one. And this is a big one. She may have, by the time you are hearing this, won the best show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Geraldine Hickey is having an incredible year. She is a brilliant stand-up comedian. And uh, I am hearing nothing but rave reviews of this show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And I think it probably goes in as being favourite for the the big award. So Friday, 23rd April, Geraldine will be doing her show, What a Surprise, as part of the Sydney Comedy Festival. There you go. All right. Uh, enjoy this episode with the brilliant Steen Raskopoulos. Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And look, this is take two. We, we, I'm here with a guest. We've had a previous go at this. And I've got to say, we had about eight goes at recording it. We got about 15 minutes of content because the line was so bad and it kept dropping out. And yet there is one bit of content from that conversation that nobody else has heard except for everybody else that I've been dropping it into conversation with. So really <laughs> what I did was a little off-the-books acoustic unofficial philosophy that I've just been ripping off one part of and telling to other people. Uh, but I'm glad to have today's guest back for his first appearance technically on the show this is how the show starts i ask the guests who they are so who are you i'm steen raskopoulos and i'm a comedian and actor if that's what you're asking specifically to say otherwise i'm just a human boy I mean, I'm asking all of those things. I'm asking whatever it is you want to answer that question with, to be honest. But I'm going to start with the bit from last podcast, the one that people didn't hear, that I have been telling people a lot. So I'm going to get you to retell this story because it is something that had never occurred to me. And you were talking me through what it was like to do a gig at a drive-in with people only <laughs> responding right. to you by honking their cars. So can you take us back to when you were performing live comedy at a drive-in? Yeah, absolutely. So this, you have to know, this was my first live gig since the first lockdown in March. And I believe the show was in August. 
and it was in a in a place called Tunbridge Wells, which is like a super fancy. Like imagine performing, you know, in someone's uh, house in Wallara um, or right. Turak. <laughs> like their their house could fit three hundred to five hundred cars. Like that's how <laughs> posh this area was. And they would all drive in socially distance, and you performed on a stage. Uh, and there were like a, a big movie screen, pro- you know, projecting so people right at the back could could see uh, you perform. And in the first show, um, people were allowed to wind down their windows, and and some even sat in front of the cars to kind of clap. But yeah, the the only acknowledgement you got instead of laughs, if people approved, was them to uh, to honk their horns at your jokes, uh, which you know took a, a bit of time to get used to. Because if you're not familiar with driving, getting honked at is not a is not a good thing. And in the second show. Uh, the police were called because of the noise pollution um, <laughs> uh, that the people of Tunbridge Wells were experiencing. So instead of um, honking of the horns, they were allowed to politely tap the top of the roof of their car and flick their <laughs> headlights, um, which was uh, not only blinding, um, but also the most awkward fucking thing I've ever experienced. Because, well, it feels to me like they've taken out all the good bits of the gig, which is the fact that you're getting a genuine connection and response from an audience and replaced them with torture techniques from Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, it was just that. Or like the game Spotto used to play on like high school camps. <laughs> so just this flashback of like, oh, shit, the, the jocks are teasing us again. Uh, that was the thing that I've like mentioned to people a lot because we've been talking about all the various different you know, types of shows people are doing. And I keep telling this story about you telling me that you'd done this drive-in show because yeah. it had never occurred to me until that moment that the sound of someone beeping their horn at you is a triggering – like in your oh. body, there is an immediate sort of you know fight or flight response that you get from triggering a horn because normally you're in traffic and someone's beeping you for doing the wrong thing or you've walked in front of traffic and somebody's about to run you over in your car. So your body to a beeping horn actually just naturally has a panic reaction. Oh, for sure. And also, you know, you're supposed to play to the crowd, but <laughs> I'd say like 30% of my set was constantly looking over my shoulder <laughs> expecting someone to be there or like putting their hands up as if I'd done something wrong or... <laughs> left the coffee cup on the top of my car or something like that. Uh, so, okay. Now, wh- where are you now? So, let's set the scene because we'll, we'll have to do all this again. But we, let's. where do we find you uh, this morning, my time, this this evening, your time? So, this evening, I'm in London in my flat in, in North London. Um currently experiencing our third lockdown. So what's that like? So what what does that mean, like, you know, in practicalities for your life, like the lockdown in London? Is it a complete lockdown? Is it very much you can only leave the house to, you know, kind of get essentials? Or what's the actual status day-to-day of the lockdown in London at the moment? Um, well, having fantastic leadership like Boris Johnson <laughs> giving a very clear precise message to the entire country it is very easy to follow um it I'll point out every- for everybody at home that steen is <laughs> reading a set of cue cards clearly off screen being held by boris johnson 
and his visa. You like living here and making money here, don't you, boy? You say these words. I'm also wearing a T-shirt that said, yes, that was sarcastic. But, um, uh, yeah, essentially you can only go to get essentials. So only the pharmacies and um, supermarkets are, are open. You can, you can order takeaway on you know various apps and stuff like that, but you can't physically go in to order food to take it away. Um, at the moment, I think you're allowed to exercise tw- twice a day day outdoors um but then you know people were uh meeting up with friends and going for walks alongside their friends and they were getting fined um and they just didn't understand why they couldn't you know walk and talk next to their friends where two people running next to each other could run and talk and sweat against each other but once again boris is doing a great job at being very clear and precise with (laughs) with that message but um, every day stuff stuff changes, so it's a constant thing of, you know, not wanting to kind of be too deep into reading too much of the sad stuff that's taking place, but also trying to every day make sure that you're now not suddenly breaking a different rule that wasn't in place 24 hours ago. So, how long have you been yourself locked down? Uh, I think since since the end of March last year, I think it'd be all up close to. F- five months now so like and so what what have you been doing with that time because i'm really fascinated by obviously a lot of people in australia had to go through this in melbourne um and i think it reveals a lot about you know who you are at your essence when you can't leave your house and you have to decide what you're going to do with yourself so what have what have you seen what have you done well i think it kind of changed the first one i think there was this um camaraderie and this motivation of like we're all in this together and we should all you know obey the rules and as long as we all do it collectively that everything will be okay and you know with that I think creatively I get so much about you know just from walking around listening to music getting on public transport you know going to gigs getting inspired by other people going to see live theater live comedy all that kind of stuff so when that's taken away from you your creativity at least for me it really felt that it was stunted but i got really good at arguing with 13 year olds on fifa um (laughs) (laughs) uh, i I think i changed a few lives other um uh, dangerous minds an outreach project yeah (laughs) God. I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer and Dangerous Minds are just helping these kids off the street <laughs> who, you know, started swearing at me for, for scoring goals and now they're quoting, you know, um, Chekhov and stuff, which is just, you know, really, really great. Um, but I think it's it's just learning how to re-communicate as well. Like people who, I'm a very social person, I like meeting up with people, physically talking to them, you know, physically being in a, in a room or, or a place with them. So having to you know, start texting a lot more and, you know, waking up early to speak with family and friends back home. And um, I think it also kind of that same experience that when you leave high school, you kind of message the people you still want to hang with. There's no, there's no, there's nothing or no one forcing you every day to come from these particular hours to see these particular people. Again, you get to choose. And I think that's the same. Like everyone's in the same boat. Like, well, I'd see this person if I did a gig. I'd see this person if I had work or filming or whatever. But do I actually want to see or speak to them currently? Um, which was, I think, interesting as well. And I, th- I think also you learn a lot after experiencing it together. So the second time around, I knew the people that I need to check in with more in terms of like mental health side of things and who probably needed a bit more support um, than 
than previous. So I'm interested in that because I think that's a really good observation, which is that there are some people who probably need to be checked in on more often. How how good are you at doing that? Are you somebody who is good at identifying that and then following that up? I think so. I think I think I was really good, and then uh, I think I'm quite emotionally flexible, so I kind of can empathise a lot more with with more people than than over myself. Um, but with that kind of came with. Uh, myself really not looking after me, um, which was quite self-destructive in a sense. So I was constantly putting others before myself and then that got to a point where I was completely burnt out um, and kind of put me in a, in a point of like clinical depression and, and anxiety and stuff. And since uh, 2017, I'd say I've slowly rebuilt myself to get out of that, to be a bit more aware um, of that was a thing that I used to do. Um, But now I'm at a point where I do feel confident and I do feel more secure in myself, knowing that when I I do need to reach out or if I need someone to, to reach out to me also. So, okay. So that's really interesting because obviously you're talking about a timeline of say three years ago mm-hmm. where, you know, you, you realize that things are probably at their worst and you have to put some structures in place around that. Mm-hmm. Right. But then you hit 2020. And I think that at least my observation is that for people who already had some, you know, existing stuff that they were going to deal with, 2020 didn't make it any easier. <laughs> no. You know, there was a whole lot of things about 2020 that just played into you know, all the toughest things about dealing with depression or anxiety or loneliness or, you know, agoraphobia. There are so many things that people are already struggling with that last year has only massively intensified. So when you're in the middle of that, how, what practical things do you have in place that, you know, stop you from sliding back to that place? Well, I I think it was firstly, because everyone around the world at some point in time had experienced a form of lockdown. It wasn't too dissimilar it wasn't as if I was like oh they won't understand or you won't get it because everyone did and it was happening everywhere everywhere around the world so it wasn't a thing just happening in australia or england it was like oh you have to be here to experience it kind of thing um so knowing that and i think that was a lot easier for for me to go hey i'm having a bad day but so is everyone else in the fucking world. <laughs> yeah, unless I'm talking to Jeff Bezos on Musk this morning, I can assume you've probably had a hard time during this as well. Yeah, and their bad days were like, I only earned like ten billion dollars today. Like fuck. <laughs> um, but I think I think you kind of get get used to it. And I think you learn quite quickly what serves you as well. So obviously, exercise is like key for me in terms of really setting the tone whether it's uh, a set thing in the morning or in the afternoon um, uh, I started doing pages as well um, like from, from the artist's way I kind of I've tried to do that book so many times and just always kind of not push through to kind of uh, finish it or attempt it. So, well, that is truly the art. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Starting something like that and never really yeah. finishing it is there is actually a page near the end that goes, "If you've got this far, you have failed the test. Yeah. You're not meant to master it." Uh, yeah, it's just a photo of uh, what a Willy Wonka going, "You win, sir," or whatever it is. Like. <laughs> the golden. City. Tell us about pages because uh, some people might have heard of this, yeah. but they might not be fully across what it is. And I have a few friends who are doing pages who who highly recommend it, I've got to say. Beck Hill, I know, mm. is a, a fan of it. I think Dil Rook 
who's currently doing pages at the moment. So mm-hmm. a few people who've been on this show have mentioned it as well. What What is it? Um, so basically, the first thing you do when you wake up with a cup of tea, you know, a cup of coffee, water, is you just write um, like four, four pages, all handwritten, and it's just a stream of consciousness. So whatever comes out, it's the whole objective is just to not let the pen stop. Don't give yourself time to think, you know, what do I really want to write? It's just whatever's coming out. Um, it could be absolutely nothing. It could be scribbles. It could just be words as long as you finish those those four pages. Um, and it's, it's very surprising like what genuinely comes out. Like the first two pages, you're kind of just like, you know, you're writing, um, you're not too sure. And then by the second page, you're talking about it. At least for me, a couple of times is like talking about an experience from high school. And you're like, what the, where the fuck has that been hiding for so long? Or, um, you know, experiences of, of, of friendships and stuff. Um, but the whole point of it is you write it and then you put it away. You never, you never read it again. Okay, so I'm fascinated by this. You never read it again. See, that I, I don't know if I could do that part of it. For me, I'd just be going back over it, going, where's the material <laughs> yeah. in this? Where's the stories that I can use, surely, right? Yeah, but that's the end of the book as well. Like, if you're using this for standard material, you've also failed the artist's way. <laughs> Um, I like the idea of you looking for advice. Are you a person who, like you said, you've you know, tried the artist's way. Yeah. Have you looked for advice in other places as well? Is that part of your makeup that, you know, you'll read a book about something, you'll challenge yourself to do an exercise around something? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think the older I get, the more I seek it out. I think I was always scared or intimidated that I didn't already know the answer. Like, I felt like a bit of an idiot, if that makes sense. I was like, oh, like, I don't want to ask this question or do something um, that I, I feel I'm supposed to know. Um, mm. um, Which is incredibly stupid because, yeah. as we all realize, <laughs> live performance, particularly comedy, is one of the most complex and dynamic things in the entire world that no one truly understands, <laughs> even the masters of the game. And yet we assume that from day one of your first open mic, you're meant to know how everything works. Yeah, absolutely. So I think now, um, and especially there's so much more out there, whether that's you know scouring various clips, online now um it's not just a a source of of reading i think with obviously the lockdown now you can't go see or hear you know people um that that much anymore so it is more you have to seek um what what you want i guess but i've always had really uh strong um people in my life from a family perspective have always kind of kept me kept me grounded i guess which um has always been uh yeah, one of the, one of the best things I think. If if I was to yeah, let's um go back a little then. Let's find out a little bit about your life story because I, I, like we have you know like met each other a bunch of times, but we've never had a really big chat about you know life. And I don't know your life story mm-hmm. that well. So take take me back. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Sydney, uh, Bardwell Park, more specifically, um, and then moved. Moved uh, to to this to like Blakehurst, which is like down south for a bit, and then kind of settled in the inner west from the age of twelve onwards. So my family still have the same home that we did since I was twelve. Um, I was quite like an all rounder at school, very sport focused and very sport heavy. I was going to um, say because you're tall, so, so you probably get no choice in that regard. I know <laughs> yeah. that as someone who was tall at like you know primary school and high school, that like sport is a thing that you're pushed into a lot. Was it something that you loved? Yeah, I loved loved sport. 
Um, my dad is also like a former captain of the Socceroos and like Hall of Famer kind of thing as well. So, uh, so in that sense, I think I, I was, you know, blessed as I say, with like good sporty genes. Um, as well as like most of my siblings, like uh, one of my sisters represented Australian figure skating, another one represented Australian like the rhythmic youth Olympics kind of thing. Um, so everyone's like quite quite sporty in my family. Um, but dad never, never, ever like pushed us towards that. Like if if we were happy, that was that was the main thing with playing. Um, the old Greek men uh, who used to love my father and used to go watch, they they didn't buy that. They would always go, you play shocker? You play shocker like an old man? And if I ever said, you know, because cricket was my main sport. So I came to England and Sri Lanka, you know, went to England and Sri Lanka when I was 15, 17 to kind of play and um, – you know, they used to go, cricket, why you play this bullshit skip sport, you fuck, you fuck. And you know, and I just didn't understand this concept of like, your father, he used to play for this this team, Sydney Olympic, you play for all the Greek people, why you give the Greek, the Greek to play for cricket for Australia, you fuck. And you're like, um, I don't know what that means, but also, um, thank you. Um, and he would just laugh, my dad would just be piercing himself laughing, um, cause he didn't, he didn't care. He didn't care what we did as long as, long as we were happy. Um, but then, well, that's inc- I did that, that drama. That, that is incredible. Yeah. So let's just before we move on to the drama stuff. So that's incredible to me that you know that he, there there was no pressure because you know. So he must, did he come to Australia as an immigrant? Was he an immigrant when he came to Australia? Yeah. So he came with my Papua New Year when he was two. Mm. So um, he doesn't obviously remember growing up in Greece quite you know he's um very Australian very Australian accent all, all that kind of stuff um but yeah he, he's always just really do you know he, he, it was always funny whenever he used to come watch us play sport um because he couldn't he couldn't stand the other parents who you know used to yell and scream kind of thing and he used to, he used to leave some games at half time and he got home like he'd get home and I'd get home after the game and you know I'm between the age of like nine to 18, you'd always think like, fuck, did I not have a good game? Was dad disappointed at me kind of thing? And he's like, nah, he just saw another dad. He just wanted to punch. And if he stayed, <laughs> if he stayed, if he stayed longer, he, he would have been arrested. He just never understood like these, you know, parents putting pressure and yelling at these kids just there to have a bit of fun kind of thing. So I remember he always used to like be completely away from from everyone else watching sport and everyone oh that's you know he's he's a mysterious dad he used to play for this he's like he just didn't like standing around with the other parents who used to yell at kids um so uh, cricket is interesting to me so was cricket just because you had an aptitude to cricket or was there something specifically about the game that you loved i think when i was oh, i would have been like six or seven and there was, a, there was a guy who used to live across the road from us, and he would have been like 16, 17, F- Phil Macken, I think his name was. And he used to always want me to play cricket with him, but I was like six or seven. So he he always used to let me kind of bowl in his driveway. He'd obviously like cream me for six every ball kind of thing because he was <laughs> much older. But um, it was the first kind of sport that he, I mean, he, now that you look at it from that perspective, he really was just oh, yeah. an older guy in the neighbourhood who wanted to bash the kids around. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that Commonwealth Bank ad, did you ever see that where the dad just rocks up the back? He's like, you, you know, Phil, midpoint, Danny, wicked keeper grabs a ball, the kid gets out of the way because the dad just charges from 20 metres away and bowls his ass out. 
Um, pretty sure that's how it's Phil. But it's the first time, I don't know, it's this really cool thing of this older kid across the road wanting to like hang with me and kind of teach me, teach me how to play. And I used to play baseball with my cousin, so I was pretty good already at throwing and catching. And um, then I was like, yeah, year three was my first game, so it would have been like under nines. Um, and then played like nine A's and then played uh, – I went to like a, a private school so you couldn't play outside of um, – for like rep teams until I was uh, in year 10. So I was 16 and I played Green Shield, which is like the best kind of club state level team um, uh, in New South Wales. So like my Green Shield captain was like David Warner and used to play against like Usman Khawaja and stuff like that. Um, so like a decent, decent level – um, and then I've told this story too many times in interviews, but it's always got to get a mention. I bought out Alistair Cook when I was in England, when he was the under 20 captain. And so in my head, I thought like, um, I was always going to do something sporty. I always thought I had this, whether it be, um, you know, hopefully playing professional sport or being involved in a, within a team capacity. Like as a, I think my work experience in year 10 and 11 was like going to the physiotherapy and I was really interested in that. And my dad was CEO of Sydney Olympic during that time as well. So I got to travel all the states following the NSL and, you know, getting involved with some of the best kind of soccer football players in the country at the time as well. And, um, so that that sport and that team and being involved in that kind of element was something that I, I really thrived on. I really, really enjoyed. Um, and I think that's why when I do my stand-up in terms of getting audience members involved in like that kind of team and camaraderie um, atmosphere that I hope to create in most of my shows is because of that that love for a team team sport. Well, it strikes me too that, you know, that improv, uh, improv you know, background like you know the fact that you do a lot of improvisation like you know you work with people in, in that is that's the team version of comedy isn't it like it's everybody yeah. on stage kind of making up comedy together as a team yeah um i think that's also the challenge as well because obviously not everyone's a comedian and uh it's usually the, the people that think they're the comedians are the ones that suck balls um <laughs> <laughs> it's always the you know, the, the guy who is going to write her at the time he wants to show off, hoping there's an agent in the crowd. Um, but it's the people that are just so relaxed and just happy to be up there or even petrified to be up there. And it just makes me work a bit harder to make them make them look like a star kind of thing. So that's I think that, that element of the unknown and every sh- – you know, although the show is a structure and I've written in a certain way, every show will be completely different because everyone's reaction um, will always be different and challenging. Okay. So, take us back now to you think you're going to be a professional sports person or being involved in professional <laughs> sport. And look, I have a little similar thing as well. I was a pretty decent junior AFL footballer. In retrospect, only because I was this height when I was 12. Dominated junior <laughs> yeah. football, basically – because I was just bigger than everybody else and when everyone else grew, turns out my advantage had been <laughs> only my height. So, had not developed oh, mate, enough skills in between. We were the same. We had, we had a guy called Doug in from year three, uh, no, from uh, year seven to year 10, I'd say. And he was, he was a man. Like this kid from 13 to 16 was a man and he played number eight. We, I was a halfback and then moved to five eight, but I'd always like call the set plays. And there was a play wheel called um, Corkscrew and he'd say that and Doug would pick the ball off of the back the scrum and he would score a try no matter 
matter where it was on the pitch, he'd pick up the ball. He was so quick. He would palm these kids who they were—they they looked like they were his kids that he was palming away, and he'd score all the time. And then we got to about sixteen. There were people. Doug was probably like the smallest in the team anymore. And when he called screwdriver, it wasn't the same feeling <laughs> you had when you were just uh, thirteen or fourteen. So there is a moment where one dream dies a little, though. So what? So okay. So you're at school. You start getting involved in drama. So I guess this is when that comes into your life as well. Um, and give us a little bit of background of that, and then take us to the point where you know performing overtakes sport as something that you might do with your life. Yeah. So I did a lot of drama at school, loved drama. I uh, had friends who used to tease me for doing drama, um, which uh, didn't, didn't help as well. Like it was something that I really enjoyed. Like I really loved improv. I really loved, you know, attending like the actual drama class, being in school plays and stuff. And then started, you know, getting a bit of, bit of copping a bit of shit from your mates about being in plays and stuff like that. And that kind of... Uh, you know, doused my enthusiasm a bit, I'd say. And then um, my elder sister, Jordan, um, was at university at the time when I was about 15, 16. And she used to bring me to uni on like school holidays. And Ed Cavalier used to host UCID Theatre Sports at the time. And um, Jordan used to say to Ed, oh, hey, like my younger brother's here. Like he's, he's pretty good at like improv. He's, you know, at school, if there's like a spare slot, you reckon Stan can join. And Ed was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And I remember, you know, seeing 300-odd kids packed into this thing. And I just thought it was so cool that people could, on a lunch break, like just have a beer in a bar and, you know, watch these other yeah. like 18, 19-year-olds. And it was the first kind of taste that I had. And the first show, I remember, it went like surprisingly well. We did this like like two-minute game called like Superheroes where the audience gives you like a made-up superhero mm-hmm. and a made-up like villain. And... Um, the it was like a, a team challenge so one team would challenge you know and the challenge they got was i had to play the superhero so i had to i had to be in the scene i couldn't just not come on i just like i had to be involved and it was um to be like a contortionist man and at the time i didn't know what, i didn't know what a, i didn't know what a contortionist was and they're like all right scene starting in five four three and i went jordan like what's a contortionist and she's just said it's a person who can like twist their body and then like they started the scene and then they introduced me and all i could do (laughs) was like i thought like twisting your body so okay cool so i just kept like (laughs) rotating my top half and then rotating my bottom half to make it just look like i was doing some kind of like weird salsa dancing kind of thing (laughs) Um, the audience at the time, they were loving it. Or at least I thought they were. But looking back on it now, I think they probably like was you know laughing, thinking that this kid does not know what a contortionist is, um, but he's giving it a fair a fair crack. Um, and then yeah, I just kind of you know any chance I got to go with Jordan again, she used to sneak me into pubs. You know when I was sixteen, seventeen to play with her and some of her uni friends, and I was still petrified though. Like re- I was really scared and intimidated, and I loved the thought of me doing it. But to actually perform on stage in front of randoms, that was that was always a, a big thing that would uh, uh, scare me. But with improv as well, uh, which differs from from stand up sometimes being a person who doesn't come on is a great thing because you're not coming on to ruin anything. You're, you're always encouraged to come on just to add if you can make the scene better. So there's a lot of shows where I would say 
I'd come on stage for like 10 seconds out of, you know, six minutes, which is quite a long time, like in a short form improv sense. But um, yeah, it was just a, just a slow, gradual kind of chip away in terms of just building up that confidence where I felt comfortable to to perform. But knowing Jordan as well, she was so amazing at improv and su- such an encouraging uh, figure in my life in terms of me being a performer, there was always a safety net. So even if I had to go on stage, I always felt safe that she would look after me kind of thing. So I'm always interested in, it's funny because it's just to me, like my brother's a dairy farmer, like my dad was a dairy farmer. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea of us both being Mm -hmm. in comedy is always just such a funny idea to me. Like, you know, so, so there was absolutely no hesitation from you pursuing a similar career path to what your sister was pursuing. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't even think about that. Like I enjoyed it as like a hobby because um, also I was doing it during high school. So I'd be at a pub until 11, 11.30, get home at midnight and then go to school the next day at 8, eight in the morning. And then I'd tell everyone, hey guys, I went to a pub last night. I'm like, fuck off, Roscopolis. You're like, no guys, seriously, like I talked to girls and had a beer. It's like, fuck off, mate. You're like, no, seriously. I also guys. played expert double figures. <laughs> <laughs> guys, do you know what a contortionist is? Because <laughs> I do. Now. Now. <laughs> Um, but yeah, even at uni, like I, I, I essentially followed a similar path to her, like did arts at Sydney Uni, um, but also she was so popular at like, the theatre sports kind of crowd and the, the sketch kind of crowd and she was on Ronnie John's as well, um, mm-hmm. the, the, show, the sketch on Channel 10, that she already had kind of a following at uni and people kind of knew her and I was always weary of that. So I think for the first term, I didn't even... I think I might have gone and seen theatres like just to go watch it mm. and it's still amazing and people who pack it out but I I also didn't want that was her thing I never thought I'd follow that and then um, one of her friends at uni at the time who I'd kind of become friends with you know going there and ha- hanging out with Jordan and her friends was like hey you need to perform like you've performed here before I know you're good I know like I've seen you before you need to come do it and I kept saying, nah, man, it's not my thing, not my thing. And then eventually, you know, performed there. Then eventually I, I auditioned to be part of like the Arts Review, which is like a faculty sketch show. And then that show was like um, Kip Williams, who's now the STC artistic director, um, like Ben Jenkins, who's an amazing writer, performer, um, Alex Lee, um, Sam Yeldum. Um, there were just so many amazing kind of talented people in that group that it kind of really, I don't know, that, I think that was the first kind of little bug of like, ooh, there could be, there could be something here that I'm really enjoying. Well, before that moment, because firstly, I like to think with the theatre sports thing that there were people around, the, the hardcore theatre sports fans, you know, improv fans, who were around the bar going, yeah, whispering to each other, that's the kid. That's him. That's <laughs> contortion. You know, the one that all the myths are about. He doesn't play anymore. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's how I imagine it. When we make the movie for this, it's going to be much more like that. But um, Yeah, people are like, did you see the full moon last night on the Wednesday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? What are you talking about? He's returned. <laughs> so what, what were you hoping, like up until that point, if you're up until that point, you know, performing has been a hobby, it's been something you've done and then it's something you've put mm. away for a little while. Um, what yeah. is it that you thought you were doing with your life at that point? Um, well, I, I tore the tendons and dislocated my fingers playing AFL in my last year at school, like just before um, cricket season was going to turn back up. And um, the the cricket, uh, head of cricket in my school, 
um, said that two schools in, in England wanted, wanted me to go to billet there for 18 months and play cricket. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of boarding? So they pay you to pay for the uh, they pay you to play for the county and this like the school boards you and you get like a, a small wage a week but that kind of you know is for you know your odds bits and pieces um, so just this weird thing of like I was still in a splint up until like five months after I finished school um, um, I started playing AFL again but couldn't really commit to um, giving 100% excuse me and I, I am that person as well, especially with sport. Like I have to, I have to give a hundred percent. I can't, I can't train once a week and then play on the weekend. It's either like I train three, four days a week with the team, and I play properly, or I don't. I don't do it all. So, um, okay. So just on that, because that's exactly what I did as well. I played football every weekend, often twice a weekend. You know, for all my teenage years, had so much fun. R- completely ruined my body in retrospect, but can't walk now because of it. But loved it, loved every bit of it. But when I got to age twenty, twenty-one, and I, I last game of football I ever played, broke my leg and um, had to miss a gig that night. I was meant to be doing a gig that night, and that was never played football again. I was like, well, I'm not going to do it socially. It's getting in the way of my work, and if I can't do it well. I'm not going to do it at all. And so many of my friends, you know, en- ended up playing cricket and footy and stuff into their sort of mid thirties and, you know, like socially on the weekends and stuff. But I never played again this thing that I love so much. But I had that similar instinct, which was if I can't do this properly, I don't really want to do it at all. Yeah. Um, Cause I think, I think I would have doubted myself as well in a sense mm-hmm. that. I probably would have still had this lingering thought of like, ooh, but the reason why you potentially didn't make it or got to as far as you could have was because you didn't put every time and effort into that. And I think that was the question of that would have kind of uh, loomed over me per se where because I didn't pursue it, I'm like, yeah, I'm cool with that. I was pretty good up until the age of 18. Whatever happened after that, maybe, maybe not, but I know – that the passion I have for comedy and like you know live performance and now getting more into like filming stuff that's that's the thing that genuinely makes me happy and resonates more with me I think more than than sport ever could because I think as you said like the older you get you kind of can't play to that certain level where I think um, every year I think I get better as a performer I get better as a writer um, and that just comes with with experience as well okay so this is a good place to ask the question that I ask in every episode, which is if you have some sort of life philosophy. And we've touched on a few things already, including that idea that you wanted to give something 100% so you don't have any regrets. But do you have an overall life philosophy a philosophy of some kind? By the way, your sister had so many good ones. So the bar has been raised pretty high from well, when she was on this podcast. Do you know what's annoying? Because she said, hey, <laughs> hey, can you write me 10 really great <laughs> – <laughs> really great points that I can mention on Will's podcast and I'll probably use them all but um, <laughs> no she's amazing that kind of stuff and very clever as well I'll give her that um, and, and very 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 kind and very well spoken um, the thing that always sticks with me is is growing up my dad always says you know we, we always want you obviously to, to be healthy but like it, 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 the, the main thing that as a father, I could always bestow upon you is to be humble and to be kind. And if 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 you if if he always says like if you're good enough, like people will do the talking for you. You don't have to talk about 
you as a performer now or as a person or like if if you are the person who is kind like people will know that they you don't need to tell people that you're kind you don't have to um you know i'm you don't want to be the type of person who tweets out hey guys donated 50 bucks today because you know <laughs> you know just do it like why are you telling why do, why do you have this feeling of you, you have to do um have to do that so that's always kind of stuck with me. Just, just be, be humble and be kind. And I think that's touch would hopefully serve, serve me quite well so far. So I can tell me about the positives of that and then tell me if there's any drawbacks to being humble and kind in the business that you've chosen to work in. Yeah, well, that's, that's what therapy's for, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, obviously, uh, tr- trying to understand what being humble is kind of takes away a lot of the potential, a bit of arrogance you might need as well to be, um, you know, to, to, to command a crowd in a live sense or have a bit of arrogance about you when dealing with more business opportunities kind of thing. Um, and also, I think in Australia, we downplay ourselves all the time. We, we don't and then you know you get on the phone or have 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 meetings or go go to places like America and yeah it's it's a completely different ball game all they want to hear is you talk about yourself and how good you are um, which is st- still this really weird feeling to to get over and it goes everything against my like my grain that I've been in doctrine with kind of thing Um and I think that's a thing I'm, I'm learning at the moment with myself of like you can still be confident in a way that would still come across as, as humble and nice without people thinking you're a fucking dickhead. I think that there's so – I got a good bit of advice early on when I went to the US, uh, which was they assume you're exaggerating by 50%. So if you go in like you are and downplay it by 25%, they're just going <laughs> to think you're shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's very good yeah you've just got to adjust to where they've set their expectations it's not about you and what you're saying it's literally about just making sure they don't think you're shit because the amount of times i would go like somebody would do some big spiel and go and they've won this award and they've done this Mm -hmm. and this show blah 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 and i was like yeah but it's not that big a deal and you just see them going okay well he said it's not that big a deal so i guess it's not that big a deal yeah I remember, I remember my first Edinburgh in 2014, which I think you, you came to the show and I know that because A, I saw you, but B, um, one of my producers at the time, Claire, was like, hey, Will's coming to the show. He's sitting in the back row. Don't fucking pick him. <laughs> Do not address him. Don't look at him. Just fucking leave him alone. And I took, took the advice. I le- left you alone. But um, it was just, I performed in like a 68-seater shipping container and I wore like two suits every performance and it was like so hot, always just a sweat. And after after one show, there was this American agent who worked for one of, one of the big agencies and I remember him just like, I was just tying up, like I was picking up props and stuff. And he's like, Jamie Fox. And he's like, what? I was like, what? He's like, Jamie Fox, you played Jamie Fox in your soundtracks for your musical cues. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, I represent Jamie. I was like, yeah, cool. I could represent you one day if you wanted to be like Jamie Fox. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about, man? Like, I'm standing with my shirt off. I've just had people rub sunscreen on my body. 
whilst fucking dying doing a disco dance and this guy is trying to hit me up and I'm like who are, who are you yeah if you're gonna be like Jamie Fox here's my card and you're gonna call me and then then I'm gonna represent you like Mr. Fox and I was like sure man um, never spoke to him again Will but it was just that arrogance of <laughs> a man I remember my tech as well Jackson's like mate we need to pack up for the next show and he just goes yeah 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 cool 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 yeah. so Jimmy Fox you're like mate we don't yep. like fair, fair play if you want to come have a chat outside we can do that but just that arrogance of just staying behind and saying you represent Jamie I go, oh, maybe it works I don't know um, I've never seen it done again hey, that, so that show is very interesting to me because I didn't know I, I don't know if I knew it was your first Edinburgh or not at the time it's a long time ago now but mm. um, I, I remember hearing the show was great and but I did have this real fear to go to it because I knew there was so much audience participation and I realised for the record I'm the world's biggest hypocrite. By the time oh. people are hearing this, I will have just done two completely improvised stand-up shows at the Brunswick Picture House, and I will have relied on the audience. I would have embarrassed them. I would have told stories about them. I would have got them involved in stuff they did not want to be involved in. And yet, when I go to a show, the last thing in the world that I could possibly imagine is being involved in that show in any way. Yeah, absolutely same. And I think we spoke yeah. about it briefly last time we spoke. Yeah. There was just this thing of hate being picked, like, you know, <laughs> do not want to be involved, do not pick me, don't look at me. Um, but quite happy to get people up and, you know, have a bit, have a bit of fun. But also I think I think what I've learned in, in a great way is through obviously getting so many people up over the years and in different countries, you learn who are not the good ones. So if I have an audience participation moment where I could be chosen you always have to hold direct eye contact give that person a massive smile and just slowly nod your head and you will not get chosen I guarantee I guarantee you're like yeah choose me yeah choose me not with your eyes not with your mouth just with your eyes and uh, the person will go fuck avoid that person at all costs it's interesting to me what you say so what, do you have a philosophy for you know how you interact with people because when I first started doing stand up just to set the scene it was your relationship with the audience even when I first started doing my improv stand-up shows a lot of it was making fun of the audience yeah it was that traditional sort of like you know kind of you know you know what's your job that's a shit job style you know interaction with an audience whereas over the years particularly as society has changed but also you know through some feedback I've got from audiences over the years just my different perspectives on the sort of entertainer I want to be like I don't want somebody to be in the show who doesn't want to be in the show. I don't want you to come along to the show and have a bad time because I included you in it. So I'm doing everything that I can possibly do in while I'm talking to people, while I'm scanning their faces to go, okay, this person's cool to be involved. This person's not cool to be involved. I'll move on. Like, What's, yeah. what's your philosophy when it comes to choosing people? So my, my, my philosophy always was um, everyone is there, come for an hour to see – not necessarily see you but to see comedy to escape from something to just put their phone away either put their phone away for an hour they've had a shit day they've had a great day but they're there just to kind of be with you in that moment for one hour um, and I don't know what that person what their day has been like so what an arsehole I would be to if someone's having the worst day where they've got bad news to get them up and, and make, make fun of them kind of thing so my 
my my process and my, I guess my, my my philosophy in shows has always been your job if you're getting someone up is always to make them the star of the scene or you know we're, we're laughing with them we're setting them up to have a big fucking home run with the audience and if there's ever a joke to be made it's always on always on me um, and I enjoy that I enjoy setting people up for those big moments and I know they're getting the bigger you know the biggest laugh or the biggest applause of the entire show but I also know that I wrote that I constructed that in a way that that was able to happen kind of thing um, but in terms of getting people up I don't I don't have a, a vetting system um, whoever's closest at the time when I walk when I see when I get like eye contact because um, I think I think I tried really early on to to vet that and I think it really ruined a lot of shows in terms of why did you go for that person because they were that keen bean kind of thing or there were times when I was like, oh, that person, I have to get them up because they're sat in that specific seat where there's either like a, a prop, a prop, you know, planted underneath. Like I used to do this, um, uh, uh, this, this, um, like Spanish soap opera scene and there was a gun taped on, like a fake gun taped underneath the, the chair. So whoever sat on that chair, had to had to be evolved kind of thing and I remember like and it was a setup so I set up earlier in the show about talking about this did you see the latest episode of the Spanish soap opera oh my god the twist at the end and who could believe like you know it was Maria the whole time whatever it was and then I play out the scene and I remember this this lady sat in the front row in Melbourne and she didn't speak a word of English and she, so when I was trying to set her up of like getting getting her up, getting her up to be a part of it, she kept like looking at her friend and her friend was pissing herself laughing because she was understanding what was taking place. And then I was like, you need like, like I was like, Maria, get out of the chair. Like, what are, what's what's underneath your chair, Maria? Maria, what's underneath your chair? And obviously by the time I'm like, Maria, please don't go underneath your chair. And they go underneath and there's a gun like, ah, no, how could you betray me? And this, 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 this woman was like just laughing and I like, talk, talking. And eventually the friend like threw the tears and like laugh is like she she only speaks Spanish she doesn't speak any English so then when she clicked and she told a friend we had this very authentic Spanish soap opera scene where the woman eventually like stood up with with the gun just speaking you know to me it sounded like gibberish Spanish but she was speaking genuine Spanish kind of thing and it was just one of those highlights of like if I knew that she was going to be that shy or that I definitely wouldn't have wouldn't have picked her and there's other moments where I've gotten like 80 year old you know uh, 80 year old ladies who have been like the best dancers for certain elements of my show where it was still that thing of like oh can I get an old lady up this might be awkward for them and they usually always like steal the shot because they're just happy to be there yeah I think I think that there is an inherent prejudice towards the elderly in comedy audiences that I particularly had to deal with quite early on where I because I you know working with the, the ABC in Australia you know it has mm-hmm. a older skewed demographic so you know I'm doing Glasshouse and I'm like 26 or 27 and it's suddenly have these people who I imagine actually now are probably like we're only sort of you know 65 70 something like that but to me looked like they were like in their 90s and I'm like oh they're gonna hate the show but of course they would love the show the most because they've already decided they don't give a fuck like if you're an 80 year old person who's going to a comedy show you've already made the choices that you're happy to be involved like you know you're not going along to be a grumpy 80 year old at that show 
also just to be like in a studio audience like the vetting cell, right. like having to sign up to attend to, they're just happy to get out of the house kind of thing yeah. and then eventually get some <laughs> some sweets from the, the warm up guy yeah I'm just here for the minties <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so you, you've gone to the UK so why do you find yourself we talked about this a little bit last time but for everybody yeah. else why why are you in the UK why are you not in Australia at the moment um, in 2014, like after my first Edinburgh, I got um, like I booked a, like a lead role in a BBC comedy, and then since then I've always had like good work here, I'd say, and it was always this thing of you know half committing, and it was similar to what we we're talking about with sport before, it was this thing of going in and out, and you know not you know being both, I guess disappointed maybe in some sense of of not really giving it 100% in either staying in Australia and giving it a proper crack or giving everything in the UK a proper crack as well. Um, so I think now this is like my 22nd or 23rd time coming back and forth between London and, and Sydney kind of thing. Um, I think there's I think there's just been a few more opportunities kind of thing um, um, for me. Um, I think from a, from a life perspective, I needed to needed to come here to kind of have a bit of bit of a break kind of thing. Um, I was at the age where um, there's like a youth mobility visa that would have like ended six months before I kind of attended, which kind of just allows you to travel in and out of um, Europe for for two years kind of thing. So I thought I, was, I may as well do that as well. Um, but I think it was just more testing myself as well, just testing myself um, in, a, in a bigger market, I'd say, as well. And a lot of the people who you know, I really look up to and, and the people that are making the sort of stuff that I wanted to be involved with were here. And I mean more from like a sketch element and from a theater element, um, you know, to be able to go and do improv shows in Warsaw over the weekend is much different to just you know driving to you know a couple couple of hours down the road to like Wollongong or something like that. So just more, I think I wanted more experience and just to see a bit more of the world as well. And and um, I'm sure you're the same, just to see where you stand as well, like where where your ability is compared to the people who you aspire to be like. And um, I'd say some of the best comics and and performers and and actors and actresses in the world at the moment are. Uh, UK or UK based. So t- tell me, who was it? Who who were those people that you aspired to be like? Who was it that you looked at and said, you know, I want to make work like that, or that's the person who's opening a door into the sort of work that I want to make? Yeah, well, it was always like, uh, you know, Julian Barrett, Old Fielding with like Mighty Boosh, Matt Matt Berry, Rich Fulcher. Um, you know, and I, then I got to do a thing with Rich as well. He played like the corrupt mayor in the show that I did, and. It was just such a surreal experience, like fanboying out, uh, you know, as him as Bob Fossil and then next minute you're in scenes with him kind of thing. And it was just, I don't know, just such a surreal, baffling kind of thing to have happened. And um, it happened in the UK where I don't think, that, you know, he would have done a project in Australia per se. Um, and then to kind of slowly, you know, follow that momentum and then, um, you know, I did. I got to do... Um, like Feel Good last, last two years ago and then did Catherine Ryan's The Duchess on Netflix and um, got to be in my partner Sarah Pascoe's show uh, Out of Her Mind and just work with uh, incredible people um, that I don't think I probably would have 
done or been lucky enough to you know just been given an opportunity to audition for a thing if i if i wasn't here okay so i'm I'm interested i mean just in your insight on this like i don't think there's any particular answer to it but i was talking to uh broden from auntie donna about the idea of whether auntie donna you know could be as successful as auntie donna has been without a worldwide audience you know that what they're doing is slightly niche now that niche once you put it in you know a whole bunch of different countries becomes you know a huge worldwide audience because there's enough people in each of those countries who really dig what it is i think when you mention somebody like the bush guys but like i think you know rich vulture is even a better example which is i mean rich vulture is like a comic genius like one of my favorite like i don't know rich well but i know him enough to you know say good day and have a chat and have you know loved his show since very early on he came out to australia and did the comedy festival early on with some it was like a lecture about mathematics or something was like the kind of like the the broad premise and still to this day one of the funniest shows i've ever seen at the melbourne comedy festival like Mm -hmm. just think he's a genius and then you see him you know, has have such a diverse career. Like you said, like he's doing stuff with the Bush. He's doing mm. like, you know, you're disenchanted, like, you know, like in the US with Matt Groening, he's doing like all these incredible projects. Is an act like that, like lost in a place like Australia? Is is Australia not big enough to sustain somebody who is like niche? Do you necessarily have to go overseas just because Australia isn't big enough? Not saying that you're necessarily niche, but I'm saying that you have chosen to do things that aren't, you know, it's not, you're not, yeah. like a guy who looks like you, who presents like you could easily be, you know, well, I'm just going to host like a topical news panel show, you know, yeah. I'm going to, you know, yeah, get up the logies, make a speech. Like there would be opportunities like that easily in Australia. You could play like leading man in a comedy. There is a career in Australia, but it would be very different to the career you're pursuing a little bit in the UK, it feels. Yeah, I think so. And I think... I think going back to like Broden and that, when you see those boys and like, I think I saw their first show like 2014 or 15 maybe because I did I did like a, a sketch show for the ABC that Zach was in as well. And then I saw, it was maybe 2015 and just seeing their show going, fuck, these guys are gangbusters in terms of not only talent but they were so unique in their style their energy their writing um their performance they just look like uh they were having the best time there was that you just wanted to be a part of Annie donna to me you just wanted to be a part of their group and they didn't rest on their laurels and they just kept getting you know more creative with their stuff and going harder at stuff and um sitting back from just you know, not from an unbiased perspective because obviously I, f- I love those guys, but I don't understand why Netflix had to give them the opportunity to film a show like that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like, it makes I know they were, sense. And I know they were, they were doing a lot of, you know, their creative control uh, with their set, but like for not any production company or network in Australia to see their talents and just throw a fucking checkbook at it and go, hey, here, make the show you want because there is nothing like you in Australia and probably the world in terms of what they do. And it's not only them. Like you see people like Edo and um, uh, like like Sam Campbell who are just these amazing performers who I don't think get given – the platform I think they probably deserve 
in, in an Australian sense. Uh, kind of yeah, Sam- no, I agree with that. I mean, like if you – like Sam Campbell and Edo would be – you know, adult swim stars in the in the in the USA, yeah. and they'd be massive stars in the UK because there's a huge infrastructure to yeah. build shows around those style of acts. And I, I'm look, I'm amazed in Australia again, particularly Edo, who like oh. you know Edo like is you know amazing because she manages to have. Like she actually has a mainstream appeal as well. Yeah. You can actually see how her show works, even though she's doing something brilliantly creative at the same time. Yeah. Um, but I know Ronnie, Ronnie Chang brings it up a lot. It's like it's the same people, I guess, still involved or who aren't willing to take a risk where I think people in America and the people in the UK, they're wanting to find that risk. They're wanting to find that next thing that they can they can bank on. Like, isn't it, wasn't it Tim Minchin who they made like an award for for him to go to Edinburgh because they were like, mm. fuck, this, kid, this guy is so talented. Like, he, he fuck Australia off. Like, just go write Matilda. <laughs> And it is true. They just made up an award because they're like, this is the, there's nothing here for your award. Please go overseas yeah. and become massive. <laughs> but it's true, right? Like, he's so fucking talented. And like, oh, yeah, you, you don't need to be here, kid. Just, just go and, and be massive, massive over there. But um, even with people like him, he's, every time I've, I've been able to, to work with him or have chats with him, he's always been the nicest person. Like, all, all those types of people who, um, who have experienced that level of of um uh success have always kind of come back and and i'd say for you as well will like my first gala i think in 2015 i was so nervous as my first kind of time doing the the the, um, the palais is it the palais theater sure, kind of? yeah. yeah and i remember just being nervous and um I, I don't even think you were like after me i think you were two or three but I remember going on stage and you, you whether or not you, you, you did it um, or I just happened to walk past you, but I know you were like, hey, mate, like it's going to be so good, like good luck, have a good one. And then you were the first person to see me come off as well. And it just meant so much, do you know what I mean? It meant so much for someone who, you know, I fucking respect so much and especially like the Australian comedy industry to kind of look after some of the you know newer kind of people coming up kind of thing and i i never I'm, like i never forget that moment and it's something um i always try and do now as well if i'm doing a gig with someone who's new i'm always you know i'll always watch their set i'll always you know wish them good luck before they go on just because i know that feeling that you gave me before i went on that kind of just settled me a little bit um yeah it's it is interesting isn't it like you forget I think that a lot of us, and, you know, there'd be plenty of people who would have a terrible version of that story to tell about me, particularly on the way up, because at the start, you are so concentrating on yourself and where you fit in and how does all this work and I don't want anyone to realize that I don't understand any of this. I've got to pretend like I understand it all. You know, there is that point where it's – but there is a point you hopefully get to where you can – see outside your own, you know, role in that space and see the broader space and, mm-hmm. you know, enjoy other people's work in that space and encourage other people's work. And I think the moment you realize that somebody else's success doesn't take anything away from you is a pretty powerful oh, moment. 100%. And I think that's what, um, like with the Arnie Donner guys and like the Eddos and, and, and Sam, like that's, that's what just baffles me, like why – they haven't been given the platform from an Australian point of view. And I know Sam uh, last year has come and done a lot more stuff in the UK and been given the opportunity. And it's like, fucking, like finally. And it's not not in terms of a thing where, 
you know, people are like, mm, we don't know how to market him in Australia. Like, we don't know how to, like, let the audience decide that. Do you know what I mean? Like this, you know, this kid is special. You know, Edo's special. And obviously like Netflix saw how special Only Donna was and stuff like that to give them the platform. And also just to give them creative control to make the thing that they want to make um, and not be hamstrung before the process even starts and not take away the magic that they have. That's a, that, I reckon that's a really interesting thing that you've got on there because uh, Stan, the network in Australia, the streaming network in Australia, uh, when everything got shut down the first time and the comedy festival got cancelled, they did this thing called the Lockdown Comedy Festival where they mm. sent everybody cameras to their homes and people, you know, like, I mean, I you know, literally just did a bit of stand-up to camera, you know, that was, you know, because that's what I do and I wanted to do something legitimate to what it is that I do. You know, we set up a pretend comedy club just outside this office here down under the house and I did my stand-up to camera. But to Zoe Coombs-Marr and Sam Campbell and these sort of people they yeah, sent Zoe it to, well, yeah. they had a camera for a week and they went away and made these incredible, essentially, you know, short films, comedy sketches, like, you know, mm. But more than a comedy sketch, you know, these things that were genuine. And I, I'm like, well, there's your show. Just give Sam, yeah. you know, a camera and give Aaron Chen a camera and give Zoe a camera. And then just at the end of each week go, all right, well, we're going to play 10 minutes of what, you know, this, this is the show. It's half an hour. There's the three of you. You get 10 minutes each and you've had like a camera and some money for a week. And yeah. whatever you bring back in, we will play that. That is the show. <laughs> Will, I'll, I'll, I'll crowdfund that right now. I'll, exec, I'll executive produce that show, get all those people on board, and I'd, I'd be up for it. But it is. Tell me, like, about, t- tell me about you. I want to talk, because I'm aware of you know, the fact that it's late at night there, and you know, I still have some stuff that I really want to get to. When it, what is it that you aim and aspire to with your work? And I'm not asking here necessarily about you know, things that you want to achieve. I'm mm. talking about things that you would like the opportunity to do or things that you would like the opportunity to say, you know, in a way that you have or haven't yet. Like what's your, you know, what's your artist's way? Let's throw the book away, but I want to oh, know about what it is that you aspire to. I've got to, to finish the book, Will. I've got to finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think what I've learned through everything is just this industry is a slog and you just have to be a bit, bit more patient um, than probably other professions. But it is it is a steady progress as long as you're willing to put in the work. Um, I think every year I do feel that I get better at things. I think I learn a lot every year and that comes from like an you know, acting and TV stuff or, you know, it's still the, the, the things that surprise me in a stand – the, like a stand-up setting or at a club or at a theatre, that dopamine hit of uh, a new discovery is still something that, you know, get, gets me buzzed and gets me rot. Um, and I think once you lose that, um, maybe that's when you start thinking about a few different things. And I think Bill Hader said it as well, where he says when you lose that, that bit of nervousness you have when you go on SNL, that's, that's your time to move away because you feel too comfortable in that kind of process and I think that resonated with me as well of, um, I don't know, I still, I just want to, I just want to keep getting better and keep making stuff that I think is, is of a quality that I think is good. <laughs> um, how, how do you assess that? Like, what is it that, you know, makes you proud of a piece of work? Um, I think... Well, I did, I did, I did, I've done six solos so far and I definitely, the last one was, was my most personal show and I've never really done anything personal 
in a way like that before. And I think that really was extremely challenging. I think it was extremely uh, important that I did it as well in terms of understanding um, why I was probably doing comedy and, and writing sketch sketches in the way that I was doing and kind of disguising them in a certain way. And I think a year after that, I just needed a break because creatively I was exhausted. And then, um, you know, with that, I kind of leaned more into acting and then kind of got a few roles in that kind of stuff. But then that made me miss doing live comedy. So I kind of went back into that. And, um, you know, I really love doing my two-man improv show, Bear Pack with Carlo. And, you know, we, we get to do that all around Europe and in Australia and stuff like that. And that's something that just always excites me because that's us essentially improvising a play with a cellist who underscores our whole soundtrack for the for the show and every show is completely different like we've never sat down and spoken about it we've never talked about structure it's just one of the most organic things that i that i've ever been involved with kind of thing and i think that continues to change and grow as well and that keeps keeps me excited and you know that that I guess helps with the acting as well. I think I learn a lot through like doing a long form improv thing and then, you know, getting to be involved in, in a couple of different productions and learning from different actors. And I got to do some scenes with Juliet Stevenson last year, um, who's like, you know, an Olivier award winning actress and just to see her work and her on set is just, I know it sounds wanky, but like just really inspiring of like, fuck, she's, you know, she's done everything and the way she approaches stuff is batshit crazy, but um, she's one of the best actors I've ever seen both on screen, but also physically working with her. Um, so just, I don't know, those little hits of like, oh, I want to do that again. I want to work with someone like like that again. Um, and that really kind of ignites the fires and, and, and the hunger to kind of keep, keep doing it per se. What's the... Uh part of it uh of you know what you've chosen to do as a career that you find the most challenging well i think at the moment just being away from my family with with the restrictions definitely um i think you know i i was very fortunate enough to kind of travel back and forth when i wanted to to see my family and i think seeing my nieces and nephew grow up now and i'm not there that's what i that's what i get a bit funny over like i've only held my nephew once and he's He's all, you know, he's a one in a bit now and he's starting to know what's going on. And I don't want to grow up where he doesn't know who I, I know it sounds weird, but like I don't want to grow up where he doesn't know who I am. And one of my nieces, also my goddaughter, and she's almost turning three and she's, she can talk now a lot better. And she's still a bit funny with me on the phone because it's FaceTime. And it's just those types of things that, um, you know, is is the sacrifice of, of coming here to pursue this, you know, work work sort of stuff, taking away from life of, of seeing my family grow up and, um, you know, my grandparents are, are getting quite old now and my last show was about my grandfather and, and to deal with his Alzheimer's and stuff like that and, um, you know, even that's, that's deteriorating quite rapidly to the last time from every time we kind of speak and um, I record our conversations and that was part of the show as well. But um, yeah, that, that's, I guess, a fear I have of, of especially with the quarantine at the moment that, you know, not being able to get back in time if something does take place. Um, 
yeah, that's a, that's a definitely a constant thought I have every day. Yeah, it's it's a hard time. I I lost my grandmother during this quarantine time, and so she lived with us like all her life, basically on the same block as us all her life. You know, really close close family, and um, I haven't seen my family since even here in Australia. You know, that's the you talk about. Yeah, you're in a different country, but like yeah. they they were in Victoria, and it was all shut down. And then I was meant to go back for family Christmas a couple of weeks ago, and then it all got shut down again. And mm. you know, my mum lived with her mum, you know, on the same block as her for, excuse me, for, you know, all her life. And I haven't got to, you know, hug my mum yet to, you know, say how sorry I am that her mum's died. And yeah, it's like, it does make all that stuff so much more difficult, but there is also like, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that it in some ways doesn't matter that you're in a different country. Sometimes you could be in the same country and still you know it might be a hard thing to do so yeah fuck man that's that is a really tough one um uh, so family is obviously very important to you it's like this has come through everything that we've spoken about is this importance of family oh definitely and i think you know my my grandmother grew up a widower like my 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 grandfather my mum's side died when she was two so like my grandma patty raised five kids by herself at the age like 26 27 um, my papu was an orphan at the age of 12. Both his parents were shot during the Greek Civil War kind of thing. My yaya was the same, then like moved to Australia with uh, my dad and my auntie when they were in the early 20s kind of thing. My dad was too. And I think they ingrained in us at quite an early age. Like family is definitely, definitely important and to, to obviously be there for each other. And um, yeah, I think... Um, I think it's just like a lot of strong ties and a lot of my, my roots I do feel are tied to to my upbringing, my family and I think everything that I've done or at least I'd, I'd say a lot of my success um, is tied down to, you know, my dad giving me advice and helping me. Um, the way I, I give people handshakes, they're surprised in terms of the fir- firmness that I have. Like, fuck, you got a good handshake. And that was my grandma, Patty. My grandma, Patty, always made sure I had a good handshake. And she was always like, never give anyone a dead fish. You'll always be a gentleman. You always like present yourself in this way and people respect you because you got a good handshake, you know. So you're um, a silent victim of coronavirus there. Yeah. <laughs> people are touching elbows now. Your, your, your strong handshake. I'll meet you. I'll meet you. I'll meet you. I'm mentioning the shake, Will. I'm mentioning the shake. Um, but yeah, and then just having having mum and dad just always, you know, kind of keep us keep us in line, and um, having you know amazing loving siblings, and with Jordan, you know, kind of giving me an opportunity, looking after me growing up, and kind of um, getting me into comedy as well. Like I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without her. And I never thought I would be doing comedy. To be fair, I always thought that that was going to be her thing, and that's what she was going to do, and turns out um two two of the (laughs) two of the kids can do it as well so um but yeah very very lucky i'd say uh so andrew denton who you know i grew up admiring always said on enough rope that the question at the heart of that entire show was life's hard how are you coping and so what what is it about life that you find hardest i think i think at the moment there's a lot of fracture obviously in the world and I think this is the first time where people have been uh, made to to do nothing, to, to kind of stand still 
in a sense and it's compulsory like we can't do anything you're in lockdown you have to stand still and i think with that more people have had a chance to read a lot more see a lot more of the news and a lot of these big events that are taking place all around the world are now kind of getting the audience that you know the same stuff has been happening for a very long time but it's the first time i'd say in ages where the whole world has kind of had to stand still to see this to read this to to witness it I think it's in very, very important the things that are happening around the world at the moment, but it's also a scary, scary time as well. Um, I've never kind of been not interested in politics, but I think you kind of have to at the moment. And the amount of corruption and and no one's really being held accountable at the moment for their actions, I think is quite a scary thing. Um, And it's blatant as well. And I think as, you know, I wouldn't say I'm, incredibly intelligent or, or, or well-read, but I still have empathy and I still have um, a general understanding of what a human is supposed, supposed to be. And, you know, for, for especially in the UK, for politicians to vote against feeding starving kids, like the, like the, the, the Minister for Children voted against it, like... It's your it's your one fucking job, mate, to look after to look after these kids. I think it's just it's really sad, and like that's I guess that's that's one of the things that's that's quite scared. But also, I think it's as I said, quite good in a way that finally people have had the chance to kind of go, oh fuck, because I didn't have to go to work today, I get to read about these horrific things taking place. We should probably address that, um, which I hope will will take place. Of course, some people have spent that time getting really into QAnon as well. So, like, <laughs> swings and roundabouts. I <laughs> mean, I was, always, I was always suspicious about this pizza thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Very true. Very true. Um, what, what do you think happens when we die? Um, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, keep, I think death is one thing that genuinely scares me when I, when I do think about it. Uh, when I genuinely think of oh fuck if I'm not here then I won't have a conscious I won't have a stream of thought I won't, won't be able to think um, I think well I don't know the answer I, I would hope there is some something but I don't know what that is um, uh, yeah whatever form takes place afterwards I hope there is a thing because I do like I do like living <laughs> I do enjoy <laughs> I do like living <clears throat> um so to thought of like not being able to have a have a have a brain and have a thought kind of scares me. What is it about life that you like? So what is you know, I guess this is the, you know, dressed up, you know, what is the meaning of life question? Or at least the, you know, passed down um what is the meaning of your life? What gives your life meaning question? I think I think the world and I think people uh are constantly are constantly writing ideas that will always surprise if that makes sense so i think you know even with comedy you can like joke about every topic or any different thing but there will always be something found that is said in a different way or tweaked in a certain way and i think i think about life in that way as well where 
no matter how hard it gets, things get easier, but also you will never not be surprised the next day. There'll always be something that will happen. They'll be like, fuck, that was pretty cool. Or like, that was interesting. Or I learned a bit today. I didn't, didn't, didn't think that was going to happen. Um, which was like, you know, very different to, to what I kind of said at the beginning about, um, uh, uh, Definitely keep this bit. This is great. Yeah, we'll leave all this in. <laughs> this is the only bit we're leaving in. Just like... <laughs> Fuck. In my head, I'm like, oh, this is going to sound if, so... If I like, know anything from the world of improvising, I should just say yes and... No, don't. <laughs> Fuck. No. Because now I'm going to like think, oh, fuck, Jordan had all these amazing ones and I'm going to sound like the dumbest fuck. Um, Actually, what I'm going to do is going to drop in a bunch of Jordan's really good ones please. in this space and then just please. check back in on you as we go. Just going, no, he still hasn't got it yet. Let's kind of be, kind of be like one of those like downloaded LimeWire or Napster tracks that just go like Steen Roscopolis over the, over the top of cop- copywriting his, his quotes. <laughs> Steve was scopless. <laughs> Original thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, use one of Jordan's and just do that. I think that um, would be. But I think in terms uh, of life, just just being surprised, constantly surprised of 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 people. And I think there is so much good in the world um, that uh, that that hopefully with these new kids who who are very woke um, will continue to to press. Um, press more goodness in the world. What's a, good, a bit of good advice you've been given? Have you ever been given a good piece of advice? Um, so, so many. Um, I think just like my, my papu, uh, he always used to just say like, enjoy it. And I didn't like, for ages I always thought it was like broken English. Like he would just so. If, if it was always like going, he'd come and see like a school play. He didn't know what the fuck Oliver Twist was about, but he would just see me before I'm like, hey, enjoy it. Like, enjoy. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. And as I got older, I was like, oh, of course. Like, it makes total sense. Like, whatever we do, just fu- like, just fucking <laughs> just enjoy it. Enjoy. And that sounds like really weird and simple, but I think coming from him who, you know, orphan fucking – you used to feed off like moldy bread he found in the streets for two weeks like went to an orphanage in Czechoslovakia and Romania and like back to Greece like for him to still have that positive kind of outlook and like hey we're still here like enjoy it like I'm like oh yeah but I think that didn't really resonate until I, I was a bit older. This one might be a bit trickier because we tend to forget <laughs> these things but is there a time that you got a really terrible piece of advice? Um Yes. It was my friend telling me that a certain girl uh, was keen on me and thought I'd go tell her how I felt. She did not feel the same. <laughs> and, uh, Will, I did it before I had a drink. I did it uh, probably way too early in the party to go, oh, fuck, I have to sit at this party for another four hours before my mum comes gets me, um, which is just... And everyone said that was one of the best parties I've ever been to. I think that was full of shit, Will, because I was just in the corner having a big sulk. Actually, you know, anyway. Um, are you a yeah. romantic person? You, you mentioned you know, your partner earlier, but are you a romantic person? Is love something that's important to you? It is. It is. I would like to think I am, but um, I think I like to think I'm. I'm uh, I think I'd like to think I'm kind. So in terms of if 
like an unspoken thing needs to be done like I'll do it but mm. like I think Valentine's Day is one of the biggest fucking pieces of shit like I don't think you should have to buy stuff or like be told like you need to buy this for this person otherwise they won't like you anymore mm. like what? So you're cheap. Like you sound, it sounds like someone who's real cheap. That's what I'm hearing. Well, you can get you can get two bunches for the next day for half the price, my friend. So play the game. Play on, player. <laughs> um, no, I like to think I'm romantic, but um, uh, yeah. So if, yeah, I haven't been told I, I haven't been told I'm not romantic. So so that kind of gives me some good. Good evidence. Yeah, it's, it's normally it's no yeah, it's normally feedback you get pretty yeah, promptly if you're not being romantic enough. Hey, um, we need to finish up. I'm aware of that, but I want to quickly talk about this new podcast that you're doing because it sounds super exciting. So tell me what's going on. Yeah, so I started a, a new podcast called Congrats on the New. So basically I interview friends similar to like a, a Graham Norton style show cross with like a thank god you're here so they're coming on to promote something that they've just done but they have no idea what it is until i tell them so um it could be like a new tv show new movie new government initiative new you know new musical album or new new musical um and it's just yeah me me asking questions and then having to improvise with uh, and go along as if they they have done it so so far and- like hamish oh sorry yeah, I was going to say, there's been some cool people on so far. Yeah, so uh, Hamish Blake, um, he came on to promote his brand new TV show, reality TV show, uh, Hamish Blake Will Fight Your Dad. Um, we had, <laughs> <laughs> we had uh, Olivia Munn come on to promote her new TV series, uh, Fish Cop, Half Fish, Half the Law. Um, who else? Uh, Reese Darby came on to promote his new animated film, uh, Johnny Lazer's Bad Boy of Space. And, um, <laughs> um, and Lolita Fope, her one just came out today, which was um, her new movie, which is this action blockbuster, which is uh, called School Captain. Like, this is one student you don't want to fuck with. Um, so yeah, a lot of fun, always different. And like, I've had I've got another eight guests for the first season and, and obviously every show is completely different. It's all improvised. Um, and yeah, some, some of the guests coming up as well, like really excited to, to share their episodes with people too. Uh, well people make sure you check that out. Uh, two more questions before we finish up here, mate. And then we're done. We got through. I'm very excited about this. This has been great. It was as fun the second time as it was well, much more fun to be <laughs> honest than the first time, <laughs> which was say. more like a progressive, progressive dinner party as you moved around your apartment <laughs> trying to find different reception we were changing <laughs> instruments i mean look i think you did everything you possibly could have done i'm thinking i'm the factor in this that fucked something up last time because we've brought pro- podcast mike in this time and it's worked perfectly so i'm blaming myself for last time uh so um, two more questions and then we're done mm-hmm. Uh, I have a magic wand and I can give you any ability in the world. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You just get to be good at this thing immediately. What is it that you would like to be able to do really well? Can I, can I travel really quick? Like, can I just get, get home really quick or is it? Well, I mean, I guess you could fly like, you know, you could like, hmm, it's a bit cheeky. practical though, isn't it? Okay. Um, I would like. Do you know what I'd love to do? I would just love to speak as many languages as possible. Comes up a lot, that one. Why Why would you like to speak as many languages as possible? Because I would love for people to really understand 
when I was upset with them and not just go, oh, this person just telling me to fuck off. And I was like, oh my God, he just told me he would spit on my grandmother's grave whilst pissing on my father's ashes. <laughs> Uh, like, final question. I, want, I want them to feel it. I want them to feel yeah. my anger. Um, I have a time machine and I can take you to any point in the future, any point in the past. You can go to a point in your own life and give yourself some advice or change it or observe it. But you don't have to. You can avoid yourself if you want. You can just go and visit some period in the future or in the past. Where do you want to go? I would love to see where my, where my papu grew up because I've, I've been to his village now in Kasuria. And in Chuka, like this this um, small, small village kind of um, in the north of Greece. And he always described it growing up in terms of there was this well there and the, like, you know, the different houses and stuff like that. And I've, I went a few years ago and it's all just shrubs. It's all just shrubs now. And for him to get from there to like Thessalonica to get to Athens in order to get a passport in order to travel to Australia – in what the 1960s early 1960s without obviously any phones internet you know any understanding he didn't speak any english like i would just love to see how the physical journey and how a person like that could even you know could even fathom a thinking he could do it and be physically doing that uh, I think that would have been an amazing thing to to watch. Steen, this has been a pleasure, mate. I'm so glad that we got to, you know, actually do this. Um, I wish you all the best of luck. I hope the lockdown does not go for too much longer and that you get to be out and about again doing things. Um, uh, when was your last live performance? Uh, it was just before Christmas. I think it was the night before they, they, they started the, the lockdown and I did a drunk improv show stupidly. And was it good? Like because this is the thing that like my last my, like my last by the time people hear this, I will have done uh, well. Hopefully, touch wood, you know, all things <laughs> going well. I will have actually been in front of people again for the first time in over ten months. But uh, I've been sitting on a Sunday night gig, gig at the Adelaide Fringe from March fifteen all this time. Which luckily not the best show uh, of the run, but was a good show, like good solid show to have in the bank. If that's the last yeah. one, then. That's okay. Um, what, what was your last one like before the lockdown? Yeah. Um, so once a year, like it's always the last show before Christmas. I do a drunk improv show. Whenever I perform, I, I don't even like have a sip of alcohol. It just doesn't it doesn't uh, suit me. It never has. I always just have the worst gigs. Um, so one time for like Christmas, for the, every year for the past five, six years, I get shit-faced before I do the show. And the whole car, you know, the people I perform, we get shit face as well. Uh, we have a lovely time. Does the audience? I do not. I do. I do not know. Um, but I think because it was the last night before everything went back into lockdown, I think everyone was just super happy to be out. Um, so from, from memory, I think it was, it was pretty good. Uh, mate, thank you so much for doing this. And um, yeah, uh, thank you. Well, thank you very much. No, thank you.